2 Kings chapter 6. Read along with me if you would, please. Verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. And he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell in the water. And he cried out, Ah! And said, Alas, Master! For it was borrowed. Have you ever used the word alas? I think, I think we should need to bring it back because it's just kind of a fun... Alas! Master, it was borrowed. So the man of God, that's Elisha, said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. That's as far as we're going. You're thinking, what? Oh, pray with me. We're about to have some fun. Well, that's not true in my case. I've already been having fun. Lord, I want to thank you so much for your word, active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword. I want to thank you, Lord, that you promise it never returns void or empty or in vain. It accomplishes everything you ordain. And that every word you wrote breathed by you. And I trust tonight you are going to speak to each of us. And that tonight you will cause this text to so open up on us that we would go, wow, what an amazing God. And I thank you that you love us enough to speak to us, each one of us. I thank you that you call us by name, not by group or height or nationality or denomination or non-denomination. You call us by name. But deeper and more meaningfully, you hold every atom in our bodies together. You know more than just our names. You know every, you've chronicled every cell. You know every breath we'll breathe. You know every place we'll go. And you love us. Though you know every evil thought we've thought or will think, you love us. And I pray specifically tonight for anyone who feels tonight like they're just not exactly where they should be. They're kind of, but not. They're in that dangerous word, almost. Or worse. And I just pray tonight that you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit 
let this precious flock see you. I pray that you would come upon me and empower me to do only what you can do. And I submit myself to the amazing work you have planned tonight. Do your work, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would say tonight is any please don't just believe me. Don't just assume if I'm saying it it must be true. But you can bet if I'm gonna say that about me, I'm gonna say that about anyone. In chapter six, starting in verse one, we read the sons of the prophets. What's evident is there are yeshivaots, there are religious schools. We have seen Elisha actually visit several of them, as Eliyahu had also done so in places like Jericho, Galgal. And we don't read them as Bible colleges or seminaries. We read them as the school of the prophets. And that's kind of an interesting term. I'm not exactly sure what prophet school would look like since you have to be 100% right 100% of the time or they stone you. So I guess I imagine like exam time must be killer. And I mean that like literally killer. But I want you to note please with me as I go through this with you. That God has this way of highlighting circumstances, single events that typify a person's life. But they also typify Israel and their state. The classic example of that, of course, Ahab's son leaning on a lattice and it caves in and he falls, for which he will not recover. And he inquires of Beelzebub. And of course, Elisha has to jump into the middle of that. And the reason I say that is, is that was the story of his life, if you will. It was a guy that was leaning on that which was way too flimsy to hold him up and it, would, it couldn't save him. Israel and Judah are in a dangerous place because they are actually unified, but they're not unified under the right reasons or pretenses. Understand, God is not completely into unity as the world would teach us. God is into unity of those who are of right mind. Amos would tell us, how can two really walk together if they don't agree? And God does want you and other Christians unified. We may have differences on whether we like to stand up and shout and fight, 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 or whether we'd like to sit down and everything is sort of ordained by the minute. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are born again and every one of us deserves hell and we've been rescued from it. And that alone should give us reason to be in union. But there are a lot of other people who are religious or spiritual who God does not want us in union with. He calls it being unequally yoked. And there is the danger 
Policemen carry weapons for good reason. In a perfect world, a policeman's purpose is to serve and protect. And there are many who are doing that. There are others who aren't. But there are many who are doing it right. But you can imagine if someone else walks up to him and goes, well, check it out. I've got a baton and a gun and a taser. Come on, let's be bros. You're like, just having the same tools does not mean that you are in union with each other. You do not have the same purposes. And God is showing us in that wicked union between a wicked king of the north and a godly king of the south that the dangerous fruit of that is going to cause detriment to both sides. And the reason I say that is when God brings up these circumstances, these situations that, you know, it just seems like God really didn't need to break. I mean, I wonder how many miracles God wrought through Elisha that he didn't record in Scripture, but he gives us this axe head one. And we kind of look at it and we go, well, that's like really cool. I mean, since this poor guy borrowed someone's axe and now he's going to be able to bring it back and go check it out, bro, everything's good. And it's like, well, okay, God sweats the small things. That's really cool. But is there something deeper and more meaningful than this that God wants to show us that's our typical of the nation in its place? And because of that, it's then applicable to me in regards to where I'm at in my life or you and yours. And I would say in every way. The sons of the prophets of Elisha said, now look it, there's not enough space for us here. Now, there's only one of two reasons for that. One is someone took their house and washed it and stuck it in the dryer. Less likely, and thus it shrunk. Or that they are growing. The irony here is is that the profit business is booming, but the nation's repentance is absent. Let me say that again. The profit business is booming, but the nation is unaffected. And it seems crazy because from the outside, we would call this a success. If we were to look at the school of prophets, what would become clear and evident is that from all intent and purposes of a worldly perspective, from a business, they're doing really well. They actually are in the middle or beginning a what we see as at least the first building expansion program in all of scriptures. Hey, we've had this place. We're, you know, we're here, and I'm not too sure exactly what they're doing there, but what's clear is, and literally, it's too thin for us. That the place we're in, it's just there's too many of us, and there's not enough space. We need to expand. But the problem is, even though that's the case, there is no repentance in Israel. And I start to wonder. If God's not showing us this right from the beginning, for that purpose alone, we could start with that. Do we, what we really want is just a whole lot of people in a room. I've had that. Matter of fact, when we kept trying to shorten it, we'd go to four services and then five with a night one and then, you know, and then two in the afternoon. Whatever we could to just kind of keep it so that we could kind of keep it somewhat containable. And yet in all of that, you know, to some, they're going to be like applauding you because check out all the people you have coming in. And if we were to look at this, I guarantee we'd think the same. 
The newspapers might show up and they'd be like, check it out. I don't know what's going on with you guys, but look at, there's a whole lot of profits happening here and there's sons of profits now and this is becoming like a family thing and there's just so many of you and wow, we need a bigger place and we need to get some land somewhere. And yet in all of this, it just seems like they might be having their cool little kumbaya sessions alone themselves. But there's just the, where in the world, how do you get this many guys and a nation's that unaffected? But I can tell you, you can put, you can shove 5,000 people in a room and there is nothing happening outside on those streets. And, and please understand, I'm not here to diss, I'm here to challenge every one of us, including me, that there's a part where, we, yes, we need to be loving each other when we need to, but there's some place where we start going, wait a minute, and we'll get there, God willing, in a couple of weeks, when we start seeing what happens with another group of lepers after the one we saw with Nehemiah and the transfers over the Gehazi. But, but please understand, we get to this point where you realize it's like just sitting, hanging out and all of this. This should inspire us to action. I remember before we left America that I had this dream. And it isn't like I think that every time I have a dream, God's trying to speak to me. But there are times where it's just so clear and evident. And here was the basic dream. And I was already a bit frustrated because we were seeing so much happen. And there was so much activity. And there was so much, you know, everything just kind of seemed like it was on high voltage. And everything seemed like there was all this momentum. But I wasn't seeing our nation changed or in that place our, our community changed like I would have hoped it would. You know, and there was still things happening. And the, the dream basically went like this. That I, I'm, I'm standing in this locker room. And as I'm standing in the locker room, I'm looking out at people that I'm quite familiar with that are people of our staff. And there are people in our volunteer staff. We had a group called MAC. And when it was like Ministry Action Cabinet, because we didn't want to call it advisory because we needed action. And so we had over 50, 60 people that were just gathered for that. And they were people that were like, okay, here's a Nino. Who wants to jump up and do something about it? And so we had all, and so we had all these kind of people in this locker room. And they were in various states of, of, you know, of equipment. Now, I, I believe in that particular case that the context was sort of an American football uh, you know, context. And the only reason I say that is there's a lot of padding and things you put on. And various people had helmets and various people had some on. Some guys were still in their street clothes. In other words, they weren't totally ready for anything. But I remember kind of standing there, and then you pull out the whiteboard that's usually on squeaky wheels, and it's, you know, kind of something that looks like about a window size, and the only thing squeakier than that, of course, is the markers you use on the whiteboard. And I'm kind of drawn, and I'm passionate, you know. I'm like spits flying out of my mouth, and I'm drawing X's and O's, and I'm like, we are going to dominate! This is foolproof! I totally know this is going to work. They don't stand a chance! And I'm drawing the X's, and I'm drawing the O's, and everyone's kind of looking, and they're nodding. And they're in it. They're in there. At least, if nothing else, they're surfing the wave of my emotion in it. And I'm like, all right, you with me? Do you got it? Yeah. And everybody runs out of the locker room and they sit in the stands. And I look and go, what in the world is going on? And I go, uh, I don't have a problem. I go, I don't not only have don't have a problem taking the field. I love taking the field. But there was a part of me that went, is this what contemporary Christianity is? Us sitting in the locker room, drawing our X's and O's, nodding idealistically about it, but not a hint of turf in our cleats. And not any grass stains on our outfits. They look and they're like, this place is too small for us. We need to build bigger. Please, 
We're going to go down to the Jordan. I remind you, Jordan means from judgment, flows from judgment. Let every man take a beam there and let them make there a place where we may dwell. Okay, we've got a problem. Here's our, here's our solution. Not, we need to send some people out. Hey, if the church reached a substantial size where it just seemed like we were becoming at that point kind of imploding, then the first thing you do is you start, I mean, here's the great part. We could send up, I mean, we, I mean, what about a church planted in Croydon? What about a church planted up in, in East Finchley? What about a church planted over in Hammersmith? What about a church planted? I mean, is there any place in London you'd go, yeah, we really don't need any more churches there. I'm not talking about we don't need another building or we don't need another group of people gathering, joining hands and singing Kumbaya, but a group of people that are hearts broken for the lost and love each other and love their God like they should. Man, there is, and that preach the gospel, believe God's word and trust God's Holy Spirit to do the work. Could you imagine I would think we need one of those on every street corner as far as I'm concerned. And there's no competition there because as far as I'm concerned, there's 12.9 million plus people in our greater metropolitan area. Some would say as many as 14.9 million. Regardless, it doesn't matter. It's more millions than we have and we're able to shake a stick at. And as far as I'm concerned, if each person could minister to five people, think about do the math on that. And that's, like two, that's over two million people that would be needed just for that alone. Now look in. For what it's worth, I just don't want us to be something where we gauge our success by a whole lot of people. But they're the same. They're like, well, let's just build a bigger place. And he goes, well, go ahead. Now, perhaps you're familiar because some of you, as we've gotten ready and walked past our Passover, that we've read the Psalms of Ascent. And in Psalm 127.1, in the Psalms of Ascent, in this one Solomon writes, and he says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, Shemar, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, hey, we're, we want to go and build a bigger place. Uh, we've got, we already have a plan. But they haven't consulted the master. Have you noticed that? Now that they have the plan and they've already made their decisions, now they consult the master because that's the term they're using for Elisha. And he says, well, go ahead. We're all just basically, here's the way the building project works. We're going to have everybody go down there. Everyone's going to basically be a lumberjack for a day. We're all going to chop down a big tree and we're going to put it on our shoulders and we're just going to basically carry them back. We're going to, it's like, think of how many, how, well, if there's this many of us, that should be a whole lot of trees. Have you ever had to carry a tree? Chico, California. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. My brother's the pastor there. He's my pastor as well. And... An amazing, amazing big brother. I'm the baby, so he's considerably older. Uh, at least I say that if you meet him. But he's one of the greatest people you'll ever meet. And up there, there are forests. Now, if you know anything about me, when you're raised poor, when someone offers you something, you go for the biggest. That's, you know, if someone says, hey, would you like a free slap in the face? I'm like, yeah, as long as it's free, it's free. Hey, I'm getting something, right? I mean, I'm, I mean, that's just, you're given this natural propensity. And they had this place where you went into the forest, you grabbed your own axe, and they said, here's the deal. Any size tree, $8. Now, I don't care whether you need a tree that size or not. I'm going to get my $8 worth. That's the way that works. Now, you're in the forest, you lose a little bit of perspective on what's big and what's not, but you walk downhill to go get your tree. 
So here I am with a handful of other guys. We all put on our flannels and, you know, tried to look like Dan with beards and the whole bin, and singing manly songs. And, uh, and, you know, it's like I think some guys bought hiking boots just for the day. And we went and we chopped down our trees. And all these guys kind of throwing their trees on. And I'm like, dude, I got the tree. And I cut down the tree. And I look and I said, who wants to help me with this? And they're like, you're on your own. So we have to walk a mile up a hill. And I'm dragging this tree, completely unaware of its size because I'm, I'm around trees. How big is it? I finally get to my pickup truck, right? It's a truck. And by the time I'm done, I kid you not, it is more than two meters in front of the truck and behind the truck. Now, that's a, that's a substantial thing. I drive it home, and my wife looks and goes, I said a tree. And I look at this thing. I mean, at this point, I'm kind of thinking if I actually try to prop it up, there might be like an eagle in a, in a nest at the top of it. And we have a, vault, a vaulted ceiling. Do you know what that means? Like, So we have these stairs that kind of walk up. So you have the ground, and it actually goes up two and a half stories. And I kid you not, we still had to cut off five feet of the tree because it was still too big. And by the way, when you have a trunk that big, you ever think you could find a tree base, like a tree holder that big? They just, I mean, you have to go to like, you know, Central Park to find one of those. Well, anyways, all of that said, I just remember what it was like cutting. And I, I, just, had a, I just had an axe. And I remember a couple of things that they would say about it. And one of the things that they were saying is that you're probably where it's wood and it's metal. And, and the way that these are built, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but the way that, that they're basically in both cases, the wood is the problem. There's two things that are used. It's the wood and the leather. The metal isn't going to give you much give. It's just going to be what it is. By the way, that's a very important part because really without the metal, you're really just whacking a tree. You're not going to really fall it unless it's already dead and it's halfway down. And at that, you'd still be impressive. It's the metal that does the work. You're aware of that. Now, traditionally, and the kind of the ones that they had here, in a similar sense, they would split the wood at the top so it was kind of like a Y. And then they would slip in this metal, the metal axe, and they would be thinner on that one particular spot. So it kind of slipped in like a tongue and groove. So it's thicker on both sides of it so it wouldn't kind of have a lot of give. And then they would take leather straps and write it around the outside of it. And the problems are two things. It, it was never the metal. It was the things that were once alive, the wood and the, the, the leather, but particularly the leather. And what they say is when the leather starts to breathe again, then you know you're in trouble. What that means is it starts to stretch and therefore it loosens up. So you know what you have to do in this? So the wood starts to go with it. Well, you take the whole thing, and what they call it is soak the head. You have to take it, and you have to take the whole thing, and you throw it in a big batch of water. And as you throw it in a big batch of water, what happens to the wood? It expands. And as it expands, it kind of then cinches into the metal again. And then what happens is once you pull it out and it dries, the leather starts to shrink again. So now you have this thing that's tight and functional. Does that sort of make sense? No. Okay, the reason I say that is, in this particular story, they're like, well, we need to go there. And the guys are taking axes. I don't know where this guy borrowed one, but some guy borrowed an axe. And it tells us then, notice in verse 3, that one said, God made very specific that it wasn't somebody that he was going to mention by name. But the point wasn't the guy's name. The point was that only one person said this. And they said to the master, hey, will you go with us? Now, put yourself in this position. You've got, a, you've got a situation you think needs to be remedied. There's obviously some cramping. Something needs to change. 
and you do what you think anyone would do that's logical and good-brained. And that is, let's help God out a little bit by coming up with our own plan and then just submitting it to God and going, you know, you're, you're busy running the universe. You really don't need help with this. I'll take care of it. Just bless what I come up with. And so what our plan was, let's build a bigger place. And we've already got it in. We've already even know how. We're going to have all the guys go and they're going to take these things and chop down these trees. We're cool with this, right, God? Okay. Oh, by the way, maybe would you go with us now? <laughs> it would have been good to start with that. Nonetheless, and he says, all right, you know what, I'm going to go, which is going to be a very key thing, because if he wasn't, we'd be in a lot bigger. Uh, and a single voice invites the master. Verse 4. And we went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, of course. By the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, the first mention of an axe in Scripture, do you know where it is? It's in the Torah, it's in Deuteronomy. And actually, strangely enough, Deuteronomy 19... Five. It says that when a man's cutting down a tree and if the axe head slips off and kills a guy, he can run to a city of refuge and not be avenged. Interesting. The first time God mentions it's about a slipping axe head. I think that's interesting. By the way, for what it's worth, I think the next chapter he tells you, you don't when you're besieging a city, you don't cut down the fruit trees because they're food and you don't want to do that because even poor people need those. Do you know only once one situation is mentioned in the New Testament about an axe? Matthew 3 and Luke 3, when it talks about the axe laid to the base of the tree. Of course, the thread is about Jerusalem. So they come and they cut down trees, but it says in verse 5, when one was cutting down a tree, that the iron axe fell into the water. Now you're probably aware of the fact that if it's an iron axe head, it's going to go to the bottom. It's more dense and heavier than the water. So the guy cries out and he says, Alas, Master, it was borrowed. Now this guy is in trouble because there's no way he's going to cut down a tree, first of all, without an axe head. Now, this is where we get to the crux of this. The rest of this is a conversation between two people. There's a conversation between Elisha and this man who we don't even have a name for. So let's just call him Bob. Bob's there and he's borrowed an axe. Bob, with his borrowed axe, goes and he swings the axe. As he swings the axe, what's clear is, is that the wood's too dry and that the flesh has started to breathe. So, as the wood's too dry and the flesh has started to breathe, to breathe the axe head flies off into the water. And it's more than he just can't cut down a, a tree now. He's in, he's in trouble because... He's going to owe this guy that he's borrowed from. I'd like you to consider what the case is. This particular man has lost his edge. He's lost more than his edge. He's lost his cutting edge. But he's lost more than his cutting edge. He's lost his head. And now, anything he does is going to be futile. He is not going to get any farther with this. Maybe that's your situation tonight. Your situation, in the same way, you've gotten more than dull in the Lord. You've lost your head. In Ephesians 1.22 and in Ephesians 4.15, it's clear that there's only one head of the church, and that head is Jesus Christ. It is amazing how we could try to replace the head with all kinds of Christianish things, holyish things, religious-ish things, but that aren't Jesus. 
But I remind you, the problem is the head is your guiding mechanism on your body. Unless it's absolutely dark and your hands and big toes are the ones to go to find the furniture in the dark, chances are your head's going to be your guidance system. And your head is your identity. And we can play games with the very things that Jesus is intended to use to lead us to Him so that He could reconcile us to the Father. We can play Father games, Holy Spirit games, Holy Bible games, where we take all of these other things and we try to put them on our shoulders and we avoid Jesus in the process. And you know why we do that? Because He is Lord. And we can take those other things and we can still try to make it seem like we're the boss, pretending like the Lord's leading us, but we're the boss and we have control and we say how much and when. But when we hand ourselves over to Jesus' guidance, He's going to tell us to let go of things we don't want to. He's going to tell us to do them at times when we have no intention of doing so. The Lordship of Christ is unfortunately sparse among his family. What's crazy is there are very few people who will call him Lord anyways and among them he says not everyone who calls me Lord or says to me Lord, Lord it will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. It gets heavier. So what if that's you tonight? Maybe the flesh has began to breathe again in you. Maybe at this point things have gotten real dry. And as a result of it now all you're really going to do is make a lot of noise. You can take your stick and whack it against the tree all you want, and all it's going to do is make noise. And you're making noise, and you're getting exhausted, and you're working hard, and you're swinging hard. But nothing's going down. And you're frustrated. I don't blame you. I would be. You're frustrated because you're, it isn't because of this is a lack of effort. Man, here you are and you're like, man, I'm watching the guy next to me. He's half my size and he just dropped the tree. And here I am. doesn't matter how big I am and how hard I swing. It isn't going to go down right now. And I'm so tired of swinging. What do you do? Notice in verse 5 again, he says, Alas, Master. Let me tell you what the man does. The first thing that he does is he gets honest. He gets honest and he says, it's gone. Do you realize how hard this is? Do you know what's hardest for? Anybody who's in ministry. The person who's supposed to be your example or the people who are supposed to be your example. Because aren't they always supposed to be perfect all the time and spirit-led and spirit-filled? Because, I mean, after everyone else is just kind of a normal human being that God's empowering, but then they're like, you know, they're like the Marvel Avengers, right? And we're like all like DC, you know. I'm here to let you know, any person is just a human being. doesn't matter how much God uses them. They're just a human being. They're a sinner saved by grace. And that grace is just demonstrated in ways that affect other people. 
But can you get honest? You don't have to necessarily, you know, turn around and go, hey, everybody at the table, let me tell you where I'm at. And I'm really just banging a stick and I don't even know what in the world I'm doing anymore, but I'm trying and I'm getting nowhere with it. I mean, but I'm asking you, are you willing to get honest with yourself? And I want to remind you, this guy is not doing nothing. This guy is doing what other prophets are doing right now. The school of the prophets, and they're all swinging axes, and this guy was doing it too. Can you start there? Because there's somebody else you're going to need to get honest with. But if you can't get honest with you about it, I don't know how in the world you're going to get honest with the master. And you're like, you know what? I've lost my head. So once he got honest with himself, then he had to plead with the master. And the term that I did, by the way, is, is he cries out. Is, he's genuinely, he's praying, in essence. The only difference is it's with a human, so it's not like that religious aspect of it. He's pleading. The term for master, by the, ter- by the way, is the term Adon. I think that you might find that interesting. So that's how this starts tonight. On this first Tuesday night after Easter. Hey, if you're in a place where you are thriving in the Lord, glory to God. Then learn from this so that you don't actually ever have to be in this place. But if you're not, I'd like you leaving here that way. And let me just say again, it isn't because you're not trying. But are you willing to get honest? And say, you know, I'm headless here. So what does Elisha do in response to that? He says, show me where. And this is a really great response from the Master. So where did you lose your head? What was the situation? Who did you add to your life? What was the new thing you put in? What was the thing you stopped doing? Because what you'll find is often some little tweak changes everything radically. You know, when Jesus starts singling out seven churches in the book of Revelation, Ephesians 2, I'm sorry, Revelation 2, the first church he, he wants to address is Ephesus. Now, it's going to go in sort of this oval, but he could have picked any church to start from. And we could say, well, logically, he's running to John, and John was kind of the bishop of that area, and that was kind of his hub. You could visit, by the way, the three places that John died and the two places that Mary died. And the only reason I say it's because they're all, you know, churches and magnificent sites, you know. So, you know, anyways. The... <clears throat> But he picks that, and I do believe he picks that because it's, he goes right for the beginning of the end with this. And please understand, I don't know if Jesus could even give the shining commendations that he gives in, in the, to this church, to many churches today. He's like, you know my word. And you've held my word. And you use my word. You can sniff out a phony. And you know people who make their claims, but they're not true. It was, oh man, you, you are, you're good with the black and white. It's the red you're missing. 
And he goes, hey, I don't want to just yell at you. I mean, he goes, these are all very commendable things. You are people of truth. But you left me. You left your first love. The crazy part is it seems like you're doing it seems like you're doing so many of the right things, but you're not even doing them for the right reason. Because do you really think all of that is an adequate replacement for actually not being with me? So what's Jesus' remedy? Because he doesn't just tell people this is what's wrong with you and then leave. He says, would you please remember from where you fell? Could you go back for a moment and remember what it was like when it was right? When you heard my name and your heart skipped a beat and you weren't afraid to say my name? When prayer was actually about talking with me and not talking at me? When you were actually excited about expecting me to do things in your life? When my forgiveness was a very real thing and new life was a very real thing. And if I were to say at that moment, I just want to fill you with my Holy Spirit, it wasn't because you would want the tingles. It was because you wanted other people to realize you just won the spiritual lottery and you wanted to share it with people and you just needed a little extra energy to get out there. Remember those days? Could you remember what it was like when we were in love? You know, when you do marriage counseling with couples that are on the brink, they're often that's what you kind of go to first. Now, you don't do it with every couple, but there are couples where it's like, could you tell me what it was like when you guys were in love? What, what did it take? What were, you, what were you like? And he says, not only should you remember, because you return back and do those first things. And he goes, and repent. It's like a change your mind. And go back to those times when you opened up the Bible the first thing in the morning because you actually expected me to speak to you. And you're like, I don't get it all. And somehow that was okay. I realize this today for whatever reason. You know, why a lot of guys don't want to join a gym. Because when you walk in, there's a whole lot of guys that have clearly been in the gym a whole lot longer. And it's intimidating. Right? I mean, it's like you don't want to go in there and the guy has to remove all of the weights from the bar and then spot you just because the bar is already, you know, 26 you know, kilos or whatever, and you're like, dude, and then the guy's like, okay, now that you're done, and then he like slaps on like a lorry on each side and stuff. It's like humiliating. Nobody wants to do that because it's like, who wants to go in and then feel like the little guy? And I realize church can be like that. You kind of come in and people are like, oh yeah, you've never, what, you didn't know there was more than one Chronicles? You know, whatever. It's amazing, you know. It's, I go, it said Leviticus, by the way. And you know, you kind of feel like this thing, you're like, oh, I'm here to tell you, right? And it's like, but you realize in all of that, he's like, but when, and back in those days, do you remember, like, it was like, it was just, wasn't it just awesome to be saved? I remember I had just given my life and someone asked me, you know, are you like dispensational? And I'm like, what exactly are you expecting me to dispense? Well, where are you at with eschatology? And I'm like, like, these are the questions you're asking me from the beginning of this? 
Imagine you just got married, you're 22 years old or 25 years old, and someone says, have you guys bought your burial plots yet? And you're like, well, excuse me, hold on, can we actually live a little bit of life together first before we start talking about sleeping eternally next to each other and worm food? You know, I mean, it's amazing to me where people want to go. Well, it's like, I just need to know whether you're in our club or not. And I'm like, well, I'll be honest right now, I am not in your club because your club is the pick, you know, to put everybody in a category club. And I'm just like, isn't it awesome that we're saved? Can I be in the, isn't it awesome that we're saved club? And Jesus is like, you know, you got so caught up in all that other stuff. You forgot to actually, you forgot kind of the reason why you started this walk in the first place, which is me. By the time he gets to the seventh church in the Lycus Valley, and that one is Laodicea. He's like, by this point, you don't even care. Like You're just numb and apathetic. The term he uses is lukewarm. And he's like, you know, you know, the most amazing thing is if that was any one of us, you would not be saying what Jesus did, which is, you know, I'm standing at the door and I knock. You know, we love to use that term in an evangelical setting, but I'm going to be honest with you. There's nothing evangelical about what he was saying there. He was calling it. He was calling his own people to repentance. Imagine they kicked him out of the church. Now, if someone kicked you out and you were actually the one who built it. Would you actually go and stand at the door and knock? He'd be like, tell me what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand at the door and burn it down. I mean, what, you know, I mean, this is Jesus' church. He's like, imagine what a gentleman our Savior is that he turns and he's knocking. He's going, but I'm not coming in unless you actually open the door for me. I'm not barging in. I'm only coming if you invite me, which is interesting because it seemed like the same thing here. No. If you're honest with yourself, could you plead with him then? And he's going to say, well, show me where you lost it. And with that, I'll tell you where I lost it. I lost it when I started doing this. I lost it when I started hanging out with this person. I lost it when I actually invited this into my life. And it seems relatively harmless. But you're aware that anything can kill you, Right? Well, I started working out. People die from that. I'm not telling you you can't work out. And the reason I say that is you can invite something into your life and some people it would be completely harmless, but for you it's just not the thing. And it opened the doors to something. And you go, what's wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're human. But now you're demonstrating it. Imagine if the Lord's like, could you be honest with me? Let's face it. The reason we don't want to take him there it's because we know if we're going to take us, if we want to take him there, he's going to want us to leave that behind, right? And by this point, sometimes we're addicted to whatever this thing is. Could you just show me? He's like, okay, I'll show you. Now, it's Elisha's turn. So he cuts off, by the way, and this is what we see here. He cuts off a stick. It's, it's the word for tree. It's the word for wood. It's the word for, well, it's not specifically the word for branch, because that's a unique word, by the way. But I find it interesting. What he does is he throws something in. Now, did you notice this tends to be Elisha's kind of manner? This is the third time this phrase has been used in a problem with Elisha. He threw it in. Remember, he did that with salt because of a bitter water. He did that with flour 
because of the death stew of gourds. And here it is. It's like, what's interesting is in all of these cases, though there was death, though there was bitterness and barrenness, and though here something is lost. What's interesting is it wasn't about removing, it was about adding. What I find interesting is when you add Jesus back into the mix, or in this case, you add the stick in or you add the tree in, it's amazing what you'll leave behind because now you're not just leaving a vacancy. You're already embracing something and then it's like, I'm good, I'm good to leave that other thing. And I go, well, huh, this word, huh? When you look at the Hebrew, when they translate, when those who actually translate the New Testament into Hebrew, and that's a dangerous thing because people come into that sometimes with their own preconceived ideas and they're like, oh, this is what it says in the Greek, but clearly it was written in the Hebrew and this is what they really meant. Well, well then you're getting into really dangerous territory because then someone else is the expert on the Bible than the Bible. But when I look at this word, when it's translated, it's in, into the New Testament in Hebrew, I find a couple of places like Galatians 3.13, 1 Peter 2.24, and Revelation 22.14. Like, for instance, when it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And, of course, it's quoted then from Deuteronomy 4. It is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Same word. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus who bore our sins on his own body on the tree. Same word. Well, what tree is he talking about in those cases? He's talking about the cross. In something you lost your head, you lost your cutting edge, you lost your purpose, you lost that part that starts to move you forward and you're like, what in the world has happened? And he's like, well, show me where it is. Thank you for being honest. Now let's fix it. And you're like, I'm not just asking for a pat on the shoulder. I want this thing fixed. And he goes, well, let's fix it. Show me where we take me. And by the way, aren't you thankful he just doesn't say, walk me through this. He's like, take me there. And this is my Savior, and I know he's yours. He's like, will you take me there? Let's go there together. You might be frightened to look at it, honestly, but I'll be with you. It might be intimidating, but I'm with you. And I, I know you might look at it and go, I know I don't want to ever really look at it because if I'm going to be honest, I know this is horrible. And he's like, I'm going to be with you. So walk me there. Let's go there together. And so you go there. And he's like, it was there. I lost it there. What's interesting is sometimes if, when in these situations you walk with them and you're like, I'm not even sure where it is and the Lord lovingly kind of leads you to it. Because I mean, let's face it, after a while, water kind of looks a bit the same. You're kind of like, it was in the water somewhere. I have a friend, well, well I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, there's, a, there's a pastor that we know in the States and he was surfing and, and uh, in Huntington Beach, and he did this, he's kind of a funny guy, and he kind of went up to one of the lifeguard towers, and he's like, hey, dude, and he's like, he's a Mexican, hey, dude, man, I'm going to like, here, take my keys, man, when I'm done surfing, I'll come and pick him up, and for whatever reason, they actually take his keys. I don't know. I, I Anyways, so he goes, and he's surfing, he surfs for a couple hours, and he comes back out, goes to the to the uh, lifeguard t- uh, tower, and he's like, hey, man, I'm okay, I'm here for my keys. And the guy looks at him like he's never seen him before. And he's like, dude, I don't, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have your keys. 
you know. And he's like, no, man, come on, man, give me my keys. And he's like, no, dude, I don't have your keys, man. You're like Jones and all me. Go aggro. And he's, you know, and it's like, and he gets really, really angry, and he storms out of there, and he's like, what is this guy? He's like, took my car, man. He took my car. He's like driving around my car right now, right? You know, he's like kind of walking around with all of it, and he's like, and it occurs to him, and finally, you know, he's like, he's calling his friend. He's like, man, I'm going to need some help. I don't know what's going on here, you know. And the dude goes, and his friend goes, well, where did you start? And he's like, you know, I started at this particular place. And he goes, and where are you standing now? See, what he didn't realize is while he was out in the water, he drifted to the next lifeguard tower. So he's asking this poor guy, and this guy used to run his own dojos, you know. So he's like, he's asking this guy, give me my keys. And the guy's like, I've never seen you before, you know, because he hadn't, because you had drifted and he didn't know it. And you're like, what if I don't even know where? The Lord will take you back. He'll get you there. That's why he wants you to take him. So what happens? He's going to throw the cross right in and he goes, let's go there. And he throws it. But did you notice, by the way, it doesn't say that it mysteriously hooked up with the axe head. And then with that, it was like, ooh, no, I have an axe. I remind you, the other guy's got a stick in his hand, right? He's still got the other part of the axe in his hand. The part, to be honest, that's kind of meaningless at this moment. Without the other part, it just isn't going to work. It's like, you know, when you see a microwave oven, but they remove the part that actually sends out the microwaves, what you have is a lovely little carousel, right? The thing can just spin around in circles, but it's never actually going to get anywhere. Some of, the, some of you have ever lost your heating element in your dryer. It flips it around a whole bunch of times, so it's been nicely, lovely tossed about, but it's not dry. Well, that's the same idea here. But you realize what happens. He threw it into the water, and then the axe had resurrected. It rose. And up to the top of the water it went. But that's not the end of the story. Nor will it be with you. See, what Jesus is going to do is what he always does. He takes the cross and he throws it right in the middle of it. I remind you, the cross is the place of total sacrifice. Chances are, the reason you lost your edge and your head in the first place is you forgot that it was about sacrifice and you should pick up your own cross to follow him. You start trying to get Jesus to serve you. But notice what Jesus says at the end. Oh, I'm sorry. Notice what Elisha says here. As he made the iron float, it says then, no, pick it up for yourself. He could have, let's face it, he could have just went, he could have had the whole thing kind of float and then come over and just attach itself to the stick that this poor guy's holding at this moment. But hear me on this. Tonight, this is my challenge to you. Somewhere down the line, you're going to have to reach in faith and take what he wants to, wants to give you, and that's he wants to give it to you back. Do you really think there's anyone in this room that God doesn't want to give you back your cutting edge, that God doesn't want to give you back your purpose, that God does not want to give you back that headship that he wants to put, that he wants to be in your life? Do you really think Jesus is like, we're so done? You know, be Ichabod Crane for the rest of your life, dude. Do you really think that's what God wants to do in your life? Especially if you cry out to him and go, God, I'm banging a stick on a tree. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 6? A religious leader named Yodus has come because his daughter's dying. She's been sick for 12 years. Well, she, I'm sorry to say that. She's a 12-year-old girl. Jesus says, I'll go. 
But while he's being thronged and on his way, and it seems to be one of those moments that everything is really time sensitive, a woman reaches out who also has had an issue for 12 years. In her case, she's been bleeding. That's kept her from temple. That's supposed to keep her from a crowd. She's supposed to be isolated. Boy, is she risking it. She could be cut off permanently because of her being in the crowd in the first place, but this gal is going to risk it because she has nothing to lose. And she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment. And we could develop a whole issues of tzitzit and hopi, but it's not the point here. And Jesus stops. How many people do you bump into, shoulders and so forth, on a train? He says, someone touched me. And of course, the disciples are like, yeah. It's the northern line. It's 5.30. It would be weirder if they didn't. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that they coincidentally touched me. They concertedly touched me. Two terms I use a lot when we talk about ministry is Jesus coincidental or is he concerted? Is he centric? Is he the point or is he subs- you know, kind of in, in essence just kind of part of the ingredients? Well, we use him when it gets us somewhere. I want to reach out to Jesus in a way that's him. He goes, oh, that one. Now he's not going to let her get away with a miracle and sneak away. Because Jesus is in a miracle machine. He's the Savior. And so he's going to talk to her and he's going to fish this out of her. And I'm so thankful for that. And to tell her her faith has made her well. But I wonder how many of us bump shoulders with Jesus even tonight. And we're not reaching. Tonight you're like, well, okay, well, we kind of had our study and we'll pray and we'll we'll get out of here before this gets even more uncomfortable because I feel like we're getting stripped naked in this room. And and there's a purpose behind that. And Jesus is going, look it. If you've lost it, let me give it back to you. And you're like, but it's dead. And he's going, cool, well, I can raise it. If I can raise an axe head, can't I raise this? If I can raise Lazarus, who by that time, he stinketh. Can't I raise this issue? Can I raise this in your this purpose, this cutting edge, this headship that I have? Can I not give that back to you? But there's something I want you to do. I want you to reach out in faith and take it. And I need you to trust me. Tonight, that's what I know the Lord brought you in this room to hear. And here we were. We were like, oh yeah, this story? What in the world? And yet the Lord really wants tonight to restore you to your cutting edge, to your purpose. By the way, you're aware of the fact your purpose is not just to make a bigger building. Your purpose is to cut down strongholds. Distinguish every high and lofty ideal against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. By the way, the real spiritual battles is mentioned in Second Corinthians ten four through six. I did a very offensive message once called the spiritual battle. It's all in your head, but the whole point of it is is that it's over your thought life, and it's like it's very real and it's not imaginary. It's very real, but the whole point of it's taking your thoughts captive. But it starts by taking down strongholds. 
So look, at, I'm, I'm not asking for you, although I'm going to be honest. I look at your faces and I see all kinds of crazy honesty right now. And we're, you know, we're in a culture where we keep a stiff upper lip and we don't want people to know stuff. But on my last message for a week to give you, because next week Dan takes the helm and he's going to rock the house, and then I come back and we get into the next situation, which is, by the way, all those worship songs are related to the next story. Uh, is that tonight, don't you, don't you want to leave here with this? Well, if God's done his part, do you realize the only thing left then, if you really are, is to be honest with him, take him to that spot. And then reach out in faith and take what he offers you. Wouldn't it be great to walk out of here like that, sharp again? By the way, all that you have, you realize, was given to you, and it's not yours without him giving it. So I think we could fairly say it was borrowed, and you're going to give it back to the Lord one day when you cash in that body anyways. But it would be nice to give it back to him properly used. As much as I'd like to take this and go, you know what, let's say, if you haven't accepted Christ, if you haven't accepted his gift in the first place, this isn't about restoring. This is about receiving the first time. But if you have received this gift, it's about being restored now. And I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to pray with me, if that makes sense. Because I really believe the Lord wants us out of here changed. Will you pray with me, please? But I'm going to take a moment and we're going to get quiet and we're going to pray. But I'm going to give a moment for you just to let God speak to you personally. And then we'll take it on that. Lord, I can look at this situation and realize that this, the nation of Israel at this season, in this time in history, was very much like this man. They had lost their headship. They had lost their, their purpose. They would lost their cutting edge. More than just gotten dull. I don't know of anyone who bludgeons a tree till it falls. But Lord, I can agree with all of that and say, well, looking historically, and the end result of that was just catastrophic. I just don't want that done to me. When I realize that when the flesh begins to breathe, when the wood gets dry, I'm risking it already. And Lord, I, I just pray for myself and every person here that we would be honest about where we are with you. And I'm sure that guy could have just tried to fake it with everyone else and tried to find a tree that already fell somewhere and tried to carry that one or whatever and just whack the tree with his stick so that he looked like he was still doing his job with everyone else. But, but I thank you for his honesty. And because it's mentioned first in Deuteronomy 19, I can't help but think that this is not an entirely uncommon event. This is not something that um, people don't see often. And I know in this room, we may be afraid to think we're the only person that could ever be this way, lose focus, fling the head. And 
then it gets so buried where like I'll never see that again. And if it'd just be us with our stick, we wouldn't. We'd have to stand before the one to whom gave us this great gift and we would say, sorry, I, I lost it. I just got buried. And uh, I can't get it back. Have a stick. But I thank you for this man's humility that was willing to be honest and to cry out And I wonder if this guy was the same guy who asked him to go with. I don't know. But because he knew that Elisha was there, he knew that he could cry out to him. And in that same way, I know you're always there. And I confess to you, God, that It's so much easier to whack a tree with a stick than it is to be honest about headlessness, losing purpose and edge. And at that point, it doesn't matter how hard we try, it's just not going to go anywhere. I pray for myself and every person here that you would right now lead us to that place. We lost our head in the first place. When the flesh started to breathe and when the wood got dry and and off went the head. And we just want to say, Lord, whatever that place is, meet us there. And raise God from the depths that which we thought could be gone for good. And in faith, we want to reach out and take it. We didn't earn it. It's your grace, it's your kindness. And we want to just in faith say, God, we just want to receive. We want to be able to say, All right, Lord, if you've done this, then I want to take this and take it to myself and say, All right, Lord, I'll take it back. Let's do this. Jesus, you yourself were flung, the head, flung, beaten against the tree, buried, and rose again. So you know how to raise things. You know what it's like to see things buried, raised up. You demand more than saviorship in our lives, but lordship. That we don't come to you and say, excuse me, servant, but but rather master, alas, master. We want to call you master and mean it. And in calling you master and mean it, take us to those places, Lord, And resurrect those things, Lord, that give us purpose and cutting edge for you. And show us, Lord, sometimes even when we've added things, the first thing we think is, 
We need to take this away, and certainly things will need to be removed. But yet, Lord, first, we need to add you. We need to put that stick back in, Lord. We need to get that that cross back in our, our Christianity. Where first, our soul was paid for. And with that said, if you've not accepted that gift, pray this prayer with me. And maybe you just want to renew your vows with the Lord. Pray this prayer. God, I come to you as a sinner. And, and I know that you paid for that at the cross. But at the cross, it's like where my whole life starts. With the resurrection, my whole new life starts. I want it to be me and you again. I want it to be me and you. And let everything else orbit that. And that our intimacy would be so right because the price you paid on the cross removed everything between us so we can be intimate. So the only thing that's going to hamper it now is me, not you. You've done all the work. You always do all the work. But you've asked me in faith to reach out and receive and I'm doing that right now. I'm seeking God to make this right and I'm holding out my hands and I'm saying, God, please take the offer, whatever it is. I just want it now. And I want it right and I want it to take it to me. that everything could change. But not just so that I could swing an axe and fall a tree. So that my universe will be right where it belongs, with you in the center. So I reach out and say, if this is what you offer, I take it. And as you raise up, raise up a new life for me. One that's deeper and more meaningful than it ever has been. So, here I am trusting you. Let's start there. And for that, Jesus, be my Lord. I trust you in this. As you saved me, be my Lord and lead me forward. In your name I pray. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen.